Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Welcome to Level 5, where you can race your horse outside or send a greyhound out to chase after a toy bunny on a track or you can kick balls around in an elite fashion but you can't get your hair done or go to a yoga class or go to the gym. That might be what happens when people making decisions are mostly, and I mean the vast majority of them, are men. That's just the way I'm looking at it at the moment. And I'm actually glad my daughters have no interest in looking at all the men on podiums giving the bad news. My daughters have adopted a kind of head in the sand approach to the pandemic, which means I have to keep turning the radio off because they're just going, no more Corona. But at least it also means that they are not getting the message that when the going gets tough, the people in charge will all have penises and they're the ones who are going to decide what happens and what we get to do and what we don't get to do. I'm sorry if it sounds a bit like a bit of a rant, but it's just been really annoying me lately. I've been in many rooms and many meetings in my career in journalism where I've been the only woman in the room. And although it was very awkward to say, and I mean really awkward at times, I often interrupted meetings to say out loud how bizarre it was that we were in this situation where I was the only woman in the room and we were making decisions about things that maybe, you know, that affected maybe the whole population, certainly all our readers, half of whom are are women. I mean, it was hard to to step up and, and mention how, how wrong that was. Um, and I'm sure things are different now uh, in, in that regard. But it was hard to do it. Uh, but what I always wished was that, and, and sometimes it did happen, that the men in those rooms would say something. And I wish now more than anything that the men in these rooms where this COVID strategy is being discussed and decided. Uh, I don't know if any of them are listening. I'm sure they're not. But I, if they are, or if you know any of them, um, I wish they'd look around and object to the fact that half the population of Ireland is not represented. And after they look around and object to that, I hope that they would go about fixing it. Because as Fintan O'Toole, who has a prostate, uh, wrote in the Irish Times this week, the absence of women in all of this is Breathtaking was his word. Uh, I'm going to read you a bit of the piece. Last Saturday, there were intensive discussions at the highest level about whether the country's anti-coronavirus measures should be raised to level five. So far as I can see, every single person involved in those discussions was male. There were six members of the government, the three party leaders, plus Pascal Donoghue, Michael McGrath and Stephen Donnelly. They were briefed by four men, Dr. Tony Holohan, Dr. Ronan Glynn, Professor Philip Nolan and Paul Reid. I assume the Secretary General of the Department of Taoiseach and Chair of the COVID-19 Oversight Group, Martin Fraser, was also heavily involved. So 11 people were engaged in making a crucial decision for Irish society and not one of them is a woman. 
In itself, this is breathtaking. There are plenty of women with vast expertise and experience. Dr. Evelyn Connolly is Deputy Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Lorraine Doherty is National Clinical Director for Health Protection. Cleana O'Farrell is Professor of Comparative Immunology at TCD. Professor Molly Byrne of NUIG is one of the state's foremost experts on behavioural psychology. I could list a dozen more women, all of them readily available to the government and already fully up to speed on the pandemic as members of advisory subgroups. But even if we leave aside the larger questions of institutional sexism, the absence of women in making decisions of such profound consequence points to a wider problem. The state has failed to develop an appropriate system of pandemic governance. This has been obvious since spring. Yet here we are, facing into winter, with essentially the same ad hoc arrangements for managing the crisis that were thrown together in panic when it began. So he moves on to another point there. um, But you can hear... I hope, the anger and frustration in the voice of Fintan O'Toole, who, as I said, has a prostate and a penis, but who also knows that when women are excluded, there is something rotten going on in the state. And I'm getting increasingly angry about this. And I think we need to be angry. So that's that. And as a little salve to stop me getting more angry and maybe you, I'm going to be a proud Irish mammy for a second and play you a little clip of my daughters singing a, a pandemic cover version that we wrote together of Dreams by the Cranberries. Please indulge me. Here they are, Joya and Priya. <laughs> oh, this year it's changing every day in every possible way and oh, apart at the seams. I know I felt like this before, but now I'm feeling it even more, because it's lockdown too. Then I open up and see me or Martin telling me all the things I cannot do. That was Joya and Priya there, my daughters, being sarcastic about the school still being open in case you didn't quite get the tone. And to continue the good news, just a reminder that tickets are still on sale for our big night in on Halloween night, 31st of October. And we're going to have a hamper from our brilliant sponsor, Green and Blacks, to give away to the best dressed person on the night. I went into town on lockdown eve to get the last of me bits for my costume. Um, so you can tune in and see what I decided to be on the night. You can get tickets from irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. That's irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. And if you go to Catlin, but you've missed the other two, Eileen Flynn and um, our other event last week with Samantha Barry, you're able to watch them because you'll get an exclusive um, link to go and see them on YouTube too. So you don't miss anything. And that's all the housekeeping, really. Just that if you want to email us about anything, we're on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. 
and on social at IT Women's Podcast. And if you're not subscribing to the podcast yet, maybe you would take a moment to do that and to tell your friends to do that too. And I should mention as well, we're delighted that we got a nomination in the Irish Journalism Awards this week. So there has been some good things happening. Three Irish Times podcasts were uh, nominated, including our little one. So we're very happy about that. Now, in today's episode, I spoke to a great woman, the author of a new book called In Her Shoes, which tells the stories of women left behind by the Eighth Amendment. In early 2018, Erin Darcy created an online art project, In Her Shoes, Women of the Eighth, to safely and anonymously share private stories of the real and devastating impact of the Eighth Amendment. In the five months leading up to the referendum on abortion, the project asked a simple question of undecided voters. Put yourself in her shoes. Within weeks, there were hundreds of stories and what began as a solo act of grassroots activism unleashed a national conversation on human rights that would change Ireland forever. I spoke to Erin about the power of storytelling and about how, as she puts it, when our history isn't important enough for men to write it down in ink, we take to needle and thread, sewing ourselves into the quilts for our daughters and sons, telling stories in the embroidery. When our histories are not safe to voice aloud, we ensure they are folded into the hems of skirts, sharp daggers tucked in hats. We will not go silently. We write our own history into legislation, into the doll, in poems, in books, in music and art. Our stories keep us alive. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation with a great woman. Here she is, Erin Darcy. Erin, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast to talk about your really excellent book, I have to say, In Her Shoes. It's called In Her Shoes, Women of the Eighth, collected, illustrated and introduced by Erin Darcy. You were a real force um, and your movement was a real force in repeal. Can you tell people about the beginning of In Her Shoes, what it started as and why you started it? Uh, Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, My book is, so how I started In Her Shoes was... um, that I needed a vote in Ireland. Uh, I didn't have a vote. So getting involved with my local repeal group, it was um, Galway East for Choice. And being on the streets and talking with people and them not knowing, um, them not really understanding what kind of, um, what what the real story of abortion is and who's really needing an abortion. Um, So... I, I, being an artist and being a mom at home, wanting something, to, some way to engage with people and get them to understand, um, kind of just see a different picture of, of what kind of a woman has an abortion and to really kind of personally understand that it's every woman. Um, and yeah, uh, so I, 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 because I didn't have a car and I couldn't go anywhere, um, I started a Facebook page to tell the anonymous stories of abortion in Ireland. Um, and then that just kind of, um, just kind of took off really quickly. Um, once you kind of recognize that, like it wasn't necessarily that women were ready to tell their stories, that women are always ready to tell their stories, but it was that people were really, really wanting to listen to them. You know, people really desperately wanted to hear what was happening around them. Um, yeah, it was just, it just started off really something simple. I would have never, ever anticipated what it became. But you you put up a, a picture of your own shoes and with the idea, it was from something that someone said to you on one of the stalls, wasn't it? Or that you said to a man when you were trying to explain to him, you know, and it was really nice. It was a lovely conversation that you depict in the book where you're sort of 
you can see his mind whirring and his mind changing right in front of you. And I think the last thing you said to him was, just think if you were in her shoes. And that phrase yeah. stuck with you. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the whole, that that just simple phrase anyway of, of you know not judging somebody until you walk a mile in their shoes. And so talking to this man on the street who was, um, he had walked past us and he was kind of annoyed with us there and turned back around to see like, what were we actually doing there? And, you know, kind of really challenge us. And... He at first was very, very anti-choice. And then he started kind of, when I gave him different, you know, ideas of what was actually really happening around, he started to question those things and kind of go, okay, okay, you know, no, that one, that one's okay. Uh, no, I would definitely want my daughter to have that or she should have that healthcare right here. And, and kind of, yeah, you could really, really see him shifting his perspective on that and that he needed to go home and think about it. He said like, well, I'm, I'm certainly not for abortion, but... And because I had to tell him as well, you know, if you walk in her shoes, but also it sounds to me like you are pro-choice. If you agree with this, you know, if, if you think that she deserves health care, then then you agree that she should be able to make those decisions herself, um, which is pro-choice and which is why we need to remove the Eighth Amendment. And, um, you know, and also trying to bring into perspective that this would impact his daughters um, and their futures if they wanted to get pregnant, uh, that it can, you know, impacted their pregnancies and births. So whether they wanted to continue a pregnancy or not, um, which was really, um, he didn't, a lot of people didn't know that part of it. Um, so, um, yeah. So after, after speaking with him and, and that idea just came to me of if, if I could find some way to bring these stories of bring this reality to people in a way that, uh, like being an artist, I love artifacts of people. I love, um, women I love I love seeing when I love taking pictures of them and but I love seeing their little you know their makeup on the desk and I love seeing just mess just simple life and so I just thought you know if I had something a pair of shoes and then their story of who is this who is walking in these shoes whose shoes who who what story do these shoes hold um, and what picture have I already created about them based on the shoes that I'm looking at? And then what I'm, and then how that story can be contradicting to what I already thought or, um, yeah, give me more like, yeah, just, I just knew that if people were hearing these stories, Irish people, especially, then they would change their minds. You know, they'd be open, they'd open their minds because they would understand the real, the real story here. So it was a Facebook page. Were you surprised by the kind of momentum that it started to take? You actually needed volunteers to help you administrate it. I mean, it became a big deal. These anonymous stories pouring into you. It grew massively really, really quickly. Um, I was fine doing it on my own um, until I think it was Catherine Zappone had read um, one of the stories out in the doll and then a few other politicians had read stories as well. Um, And then I realised, oh my God, this is like this is actually really, really big. You know, that was really massively important and it's such a historical moment to have abortion stories recorded forever in in um, place of government. And uh, so one of my friends had contacted me and she said, okay, I think, you know, I think you do need help because I was really taking it all on myself going like, oh no, I can't burden somebody else with this. You know, this is a lot and it was my idea and, and what if I'm putting all this pressure on somebody else to have to deal with this? Um... And they, so a few of my friends came on and, um, and it was so good. You know, it was really hard for me to, to ask for help and also really hard for me to accept the help. 
Um, but once we did, once I did, uh, we had a great little team going and um, could kind of, um, you know, choose, you know, kind of give each other little jobs. Uh, most of us were mothers. So doing round the clock work with being parents and taking in all these stories um, was a massive amount of work that we didn't expect, but also was really, really really, really beautiful because it felt like such a real tangible way of actually making change and being there with women. I mean, when you think about the result, the the yes vote that we eventually got, um, and you think about those polls afterwards where they asked people, what was it that changed your mind or why did you vote yes? Time and time again, people cited women's stories. So you must feel very gratified by that, that that the Facebook page, that In Her Shoes and all those stories really did do exactly what you had hoped, which was make people shift maybe their thinking and realise that that could be me, it could be my sister, it could be my mum. Uh, and it humanised everything. And, and, and sort of there was a solidarity there, perhaps, that hadn't been there before. It must have felt very gratifying. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things I thought was, you know, the day before uh, when we when we were voting, what, what I was thinking is, even if we don't win this, something massive has changed and something massive has happened within our society that we've had these conversations that we're, we're talking about abortion in a very, very real way and actually an easy way for people to have these conversations, you know, for them to talk about it without it being about themselves or about their their views but to gently find a way to understand it. So I felt like even if we didn't win this referendum, something massive has, has already shifted within, within generationally, you know, this understanding across the board from, from people. Um, Yeah, it was incredible. I, I really, really hate that women ever had to tell their stories in order to gain their rights to their own bodies. Um, It's, completely unacceptable that we have to, 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 it was like begging, here's our, ourselves just so vulnerable and raw and having to beg for our rights. Um, but I also like to think that I know that for a lot of people telling their stories was also healing. Um, a lot of people reading the stories was also really healing. Um, and, and I, I want to feel, I feel like it was more than here, I'm having to tell my story so I can have rights and more like, I'm, I want to let this out. I want to tell people this happened because I'm not ashamed and it's nothing to be ashamed of and to end the stigma about abortion that doesn't belong to any of us. Yeah. It must have been very difficult to pick the 32 stories that ended up in the book, but I know you wanted to represent, really to do your best to kind of represent as many women as you could in those 32 stories. Yeah, I, like there are so many incredible stories. All of them are all unique. There's not one story that's the same. Um, so it was difficult to find, um, to, to select 32, uh, and then, and also doing that was also to try to make sure that I could find the people and, and get their full consent that they wanted their story told in a book. Um, and, you know, I couldn't, um, yeah, just trying to find somebody that might represent something across the board of, of different types of abortions or different stories that might've been really, um, that impacted me. Um, there's some that uh, that I would have I would have loved to have every single one of them um, put into the book, but uh, it's really nice that um, all the stories from the page are being um, um, kept in the digital repository in Ireland, so they'll forever be available for um, people to come to. And it's the first time in our in our history that this kind of work 
So all of all of women's liberation, the women's liberation movement, that they weren't able to keep all of that stuff in. They didn't keep it in digital repositories or keep it properly. Um, so this is the first time that all of the repeal stuff is being kept forever now. So which is really really incredible to know that this is part of it. You know, that's something I just thought of. It's just something so simple and something that I'm doing at home as a mother and breastfeeding my baby in the middle of the night, that this work is actually really, really important and is being acknowledged as that in the country, you know. Yeah, because it was a lot of work, but it was also at a difficult time for you because you were going through your own grief of losing your mother who died very sadly um, not long before. So talk to me about that, about kind of grappling with those, with that with that loss while you were doing this really important work. Well, grief is really, um, really interesting. So uh, my grief, uh, it was I was mothering young children at the same time I lost my best friend. Um, and my way of dealing with that was um, refocusing on something really important and something really big. Um, I had already been part of the repeal movement and my mom was very, very supportive of, of that. So feeling like I have to do something and also maybe part of my like grief denial and bargaining with death of thinking if I do something, if I do it really, really well, then maybe I can have my mom again. You know, this, you kind of go to a weird place. Um, so all throughout it, I was really just like, I was trading my grief for dealing with, holding this grief of other women I was I was kind of maybe almost punishing myself to just go I can take in all of this stuff I can take in all of this hard stuff from other people and just like pour it onto me and it's fine because I can hold it because I was in my own dark place but holding those stories and doing that work for those women were the only things that kept me afloat um so once we got to the referendum and once we got to the vote um I was like expecting um okay this is it if we if we did this, we did it and it happened and where's my mom, you know, and it came, it really, really came crashing down. And I think that a lot of people who have experienced grief can understand that where you don't want to deal with the reality or the heaviness um, that comes with the loss and you kind of transfer it, trade it for a little bit with something else. Um, and then once you have to face it, um, you're lost. And, and we had repeal had, we had won. There was still more work to do. Other people were celebrating and then you're left there going, okay, now, now what? Now you haven't been dealing with any of, any of the grief properly, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was a mass amount of work. I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud that my mother, uh, was part of it for me. Um, she would be so like, just seeing all of it happen, she would have been she was my biggest champion. You know, she would have been so excited and delighted. I mean, such a big part of this. My dad is, my dad is so supportive. And, and um, because of everything I've done here with, with repeal, he's constantly donating money to Planned Parenthood in America and writing to our um, senators and stuff in America, which is really so sweet um, that he's trying to be involved as much as he can in the States. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black. A rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. I have to tell people, because some people might think this book uh, will only be of interest if you're interested in repeal, but I have to say, 
I was blown away by the writing of the book, Erin. I know you're an artist, but you're such a beautiful writer. And I, I really want to tell people that, that this is not just the story of women's abortion stories. This is your story, too. The story of a of a young woman arriving in Ireland. I mean, it's it's I feel like there's someone should make a movie of it in a way <laughs> because it's so incredible. I'm just going to read out the first paragraph, which sort of gives a little hint as to how you ended up in Ireland, because you're you're from kind of, you know, places like Oklahoma and the mountains of Colorado and Washington and all of that. But let me just read this paragraph and maybe you can then tell us the story of how you ended up here because it's brilliant. Um, the, this chapter is called Selkies. It was the Selkies that brought me here. Selkies I learned from the secret of Roan Inish are mysterious mythological creatures, half seal, half woman, that come to the shore and shed their pelts to sunbathe in human skin. To sunbathe in human skin. If someone takes a pelt home, the woman will stay, but forever long for home, for the sea, for belonging. I longed for the sea. So that's how you sort of begin your insight into your uh, Irish journey, I suppose. So maybe talk to us about you as a young woman um, having settled in Oklahoma and how the heck you ended up coming here. (laughs) Well, uh, all my life, um, you know, learning about a bit of our ancestry of being Irish, um, like long, long, long ago. Um, But my mom and I would always watch The Secret of Roninish and we just, I loved it. And any bit of, any kind of story I could get my hands on about Ireland, I was in love with it. And I dreamt of coming to Ireland. Um, It just felt like this pull, which I know so many Americans all have that same thing where we're all like, oh, it's the homeland. We all have to go. Um, Well, with a name like Aaron Darcy in fairness, I think, you know, well, I uh, well, Darcy is my husband's name, but I'm Erin Connolly originally. So like, you oh, know, there you go. Fair. Even yeah. more. Erin Connolly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I just like, you know, you just feel that pool of like, I want to go. I want to go and see this place. And I was in love with all these stories of of um, people having to leave and and what happened with that. So I started looking for a pen pal um, when I was 14 or 15 and then I found um some Irish chat rooms which were really really cool like I loved it I was in high school and I was talking to people in Ireland and learning kind of the way of talking I mean this was ridiculous it was like you know ASL like you're there asking like where is everybody at and what is everybody into and um having stupid lovely chats about things you know I had people who were talking about um their music that they were into and it was just simple and funny and Irish people were wonderful to talk to. They were just so friendly. Like they all knew that I was like a little uh, American girl in there and they just took me in. (laughs) And um, so I was in chat rooms, uh, in Irish chat rooms, talking to these people. And um, one of the regulars had introduced me to this boy and said, I think you guys would have a lot in common. I think you'd like him. And so I started chatting with him and instantly really, really liked him and saw his picture and thought oh my god oh, he was the first person who he was the first boy that I had ever like really really liked and so I was obsessed uh, like we would just send each other emails back and forth constantly and talking in these chat rooms and um, that went on for two years of us talking back and forth and phone calls and got calling cards and uh, not being able to understand his voice his his accent whatsoever you know, um, and then he asked his mom for a, a plane ticket for me to come to Ireland for Christmas. Now, that's huge. Sorry, there's a boy in Ireland, a teenager, and he says to his mom, Mom, do you know what I really want for Christmas is give me the money to fly this girl over from Oklahoma that I've been talking to on the Internet. Like, 
That is crazy. It is crazy. Um, as a mother, I don't know how anybody um, does that. How anybody lets their kid do that. <laughs> um, I had to ask my parents because um, he had said, okay, she said yes. And I was like, okay, uh, I'll ask my parents then thinking like, there's no way. And what am I going to do if they say no? And, you know, my parents had talked to talk to him on the phone as well. But um, yeah, so I asked my parents and and they said yes. And I was... And his mom said yes, more importantly, his mom and dad. Yeah, his mom said yes, uh, absolutely. And and my parents said yes. And then we were booking my flights, getting my passport. And you, you didn't have a passport at this point? No, I mean, well, I think that most Americans don't really have a passport. Anyway, I mean, I was a teenager. I hadn't been outside of the country, you know. And I got on a plane the day after Christmas. I think that was like really my first flight that I can ever actually remember. You know, I think I flew once as a kid. So this was me flying on my own. I had a layover in Chicago and then I was on a plane to Ireland and I was so scared on the airplane. I'd never been on a big airplane ever before. Didn't know where, I was afraid like to get up to find a bathroom. I was like, nope, I'm just stay right here. This is where I'm supposed to be. Like I was such a, I was so innocent really when I think about it. And I, and um, yeah, I landed in Dublin and and he was there. What was it like seeing him for the first time? Uh, well, like I have butterflies thinking about it right now. You know, it was so sweet. Uh, he was just, um, yeah, it was incredible. Um, so was it just him or him with his parents or what? He was there with his uncle and his best friend. So these three men <laughs> who were like towering above me, uh, you know, six foot three and I'm five foot six or something so they're just all hovering around me and uh, they were all so lovely and I was just trying to be like real real cool um but um Stephen and, and I were each other's first boyfriend and girlfriend and so you kissed at the airport did you and it was both of your first kisses yeah, is that right yeah so we were uh, all sweaty hands and uh, awkward teenagers um <laughs> So, yeah. And then I didn't, you know, I didn't even really think about the gravity of what was happening until we were in the car and and almost getting to his his mom's house going, oh, my God, I'm actually going to meet like his whole family right now. And what if it's all weird? And what if it like, what are they going to be like? You know, I didn't even it didn't even sink in. I was just thinking, I'm just going to Ireland to see Stephen. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to go and see this boy that I'm in love with. Uh, I didn't even really think about the reality, you know. Um, and it was wonderful. His family was, was gorgeous. They welcomed me in, uh, they were so excited to have me and yeah, it was just, everything felt so normal. You know, everything's felt so comfortable immediately. And they served you a big Irish breakfast when you got there, did you? I I love your description of the- Oh yeah. Like this massive, massive plate of like a big fry up. So I was just like... You'd never seen one before. I was kind of horrified by like this big plate full of meat and beans. And I was like, what? What do I even do with this? I think I I think I even wrote my mom an email about it as well to be like, I don't even know. Like, <laughs> And now if you were to put that in front of me, I would just like, you know, obviously eat the whole thing and be like, that, that'd be my ideal breakfast. But, uh, <laughs> you know, then I was just like, oh my God, what's this? Um, and they would just like kind of, I think they just kind of put it in front of me and then just kind of all sat around watching just watching me, you know. <laughs> um, but no, it was just, uh, it was so you wonderful. Were you were there for two weeks. What was it like? Was it magical? Are your memories of that like just? Uh, my memories of that are uh, kind of a blur of 
just wonderfulness. It was cold. It was uh, wet. Uh, we went to Dublin. We went to Galway. We I, I can't really remember the things that we did or saw because I was just there holding his hand and we were like gross teenagers, like kissing in public, you know. And um, oh, it was wonderful. My mom kept wanting to call and talk to me that she was excited for me to come home and I did not want to come home. And it was devastating to know like our time every day was was getting closer to me leaving. Um, so yeah, we were just trying to, we were just like heartbroken, sick puppy kids that were like, I don't want to go. I don't want to let you go. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was magical. It was lovely. He was everything and more. And so I think it was the last day before I was due to fly back home that his mom was like, well, why don't you just go down to the travel agency and get a ticket for him to come over there? And we were like, oh my God, we could do that. You know, and I don't know, we were just such kids to even think that international travel is possible. Like who, who does that? Um, and so we went and booked a ticket and it was the most exciting thing. So we had somebody to count down to for us to see each other again. Um, but God, goodbyes in the airport. I still get so upset when I see other couples in the airport. I'm like, oh my God, I know. I know how that feels. It's awful. So listen, fast forward, the relationship kept going and tell us what happened well uh we traveled back and forth a few times and then I graduated high school and I moved over here so I was 18 my parents came with me as my like last send-off they got to meet all of his family and and then after a few weeks of my parents being here we put them on the plane for them to go back home and then Stephen and I got married um so it was just how old were you when you got married I had just turned 19 um, and he was 19 or did he turn 20? I mean, he might've been 20. Yeah. Uh, which I know is not, you know, usual. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was a thing of, well, we were like desperately in love and wanted to be married. There was immigration of like, we didn't want to ever be apart. We wanted to make sure like we didn't want the ocean. We didn't want laws to separate us from each other. Um, and we just wanted to be married immediately. We just wanted to make sure that we were together forever. Um, so it was just me and him and his, his grandmother and his best friend. Um, really, really simple and sweet. And we will be married now, uh, next month in November for 14 years now. Amazing. What a story. I don't know how that all happened. Uh, it seems so weird when you think about it, when I, when I actually talk about it like that. <laughs> <laughs> that that would actually be a real thing. Um, but I've been so lucky. He's one of my, he's my best friend. Uh, he's such an incredible person. And, um, and he's been so supportive of me through everything that I've, everything I've done, all of my like weird ideas. Um, and um, yeah, he's just such a beautiful person. I'm so lucky. You talk in the book, which again, I have to tell everyone is so brilliantly written and is so gripping the way you tell your story about pregnancy loss um, and about your own sort of struggles with fertility as well. How did that all feed into your kind of feminism and the work you did within her shoes? For me, um, pregnancy loss, miscarriage is something that's so taboo in our society. And I don't feel like I don't, I don't really understand the reason why. 
I feel like it's something that we all want to talk about. And there's so many things as being a woman that, and our experiences of being a woman, whether it's infertility or our first periods or our periods, you know, of, of, of blood, menstruation, of pregnancy, abortion, miscarriage, all these things that are so personal, such a lived experience for us and that so many of us are carrying that we want so much to talk about it. We would have been talking about it, you know, years and years and years ago. It would have been so normal for us to be talking about. And now we're living in this way where that's just not talked about. And I, being in birth gatherings, something that I really, really love. I really, it's a part of being with women that I really love is how we can talk about this kind of stuff easily. And, um, you know, Tell us about birth gatherings for people who wouldn't know what that phrase means. Um, so uh, birth gathering is when you are with other um, women, couples, where you're talking about, um, I think I'm I'm with Galway Birth Gathering and there's some other ones around the country where you might talk about your birth stories or uh, what's happening, you know, f- uh, around in the country for like in the local hospitals. Um, one of our, one of our, people with uh, our Galway birth gathering is from Ames, Ireland. So it's Association to Improve Maternity Services. So in ours, we would have been talking specifically about what kind of stuff we wanted to change for pregnancy and birth in Galway in our local hospitals and the choices that we want to have. So it would have been a place for me to meet people who are having home births or um, who are wanting to train as a midwife or um, couples who were uh, we'd have a few couples who maybe we were new to Ireland and wanted to know what their rights were or, you know, meeting other new moms or or whatever, just a way of networking and talking with moms. So we were just talking about how all of that informed your feminism and your work within her shoes, your own sort of wanting to break the taboos and wanting women to be able to speak freely about these experiences. Well, I think one of the things was that I was breastfeeding my first daughter. So after I got pregnant and I had my first birth in Ireland, I was breastfeeding my child. And in Ireland, it's really not, um, it's not common to breastfeed past six weeks if you make it to six weeks. So finding groups of women in Ireland who were breastfeeding um, long term um, is when I kind of really discovered, um, kind of really understood feminism, I suppose, for me, uh, like my personal experience with really understanding feminism and really understanding what was happening around us for women's bodies and what we're having to fight against um, in order to have um, the experiences that we want of, of getting to have um, the kind of births we want and and mothering. Um, so being around women and talking about our stories is was something that is just passionate is something I'm just passionate about. I shared openly about my miscarriage. I wrote a blog about it and, and people really resonate with that. I talk openly about, you know, um, you know, trying to love your body and, and really embracing my, my body, um, uh, postpartum. It's something that I just think is so beautiful on, on every person. And, um, yeah, so that just was easy, kind of easily led me to talking with other women about their stories. Uh, it just kind of seemed such a natural progression to talk about these things. Um, so doing In Her Shoes was just another part of a circle for me, you know, another part of an online circle. I was already in my online circles with Irish people in chat rooms. And then um, and then these mothering groups where we're talking about breastfeeding our babies and then moving into mothering and talking with other mothers who are having miscarriages and having abortions. Um, it was just another facet of being a woman, 
um, and so natural for us to talk about. The Ireland that you came to, say, whatever, 15 or 16 years ago, originally for that first, um, longer than that, I say, holiday, uh, that two week holiday. It's a different place in a way, isn't it? Do you do you feel you've sort of really been part and seen that evolution happen um, firsthand because so many changes have happened and you, with your work with Repeal, have really been part of it. I think that's really great the way you integrated yourself into this land that you had so many fantasies about. Yeah, well, it's weird. I can't, it's really weird for me to think that I had that kind of an impact on a country. You know, I don't, I wouldn't, hmm, it's really weird. Yeah. Well, you were part of it. I mean, I think there were so many facets. I'm not kind of, I don't want to, I know what you're saying. I don't want to overplay it, but I think there were so many threads that came together and your thread was one of them. And yeah. it was, it was, it, you're somebody who came from outside to a degree into a place and it's, yeah, it's I nice. Felt, I felt yeah, I was, I felt lucky to be, to be really, to be a part of it and to be included. And it was really kind of hard to find that, um, that underground group of activists and, and rebels really in Ireland for me to be, get to be part of it. Um, but yeah, certainly when I first got here, um, I wouldn't have known anything what was happening. Um, but to hearing people talk, like one of um, my husband's neighbors that he grow, grew up with had said something about like, oh, I'm glad you're here uh, and you're not in America with all the abortions. And I was like, what is that? What does that, what does that mean? You know, it didn't, it didn't understand what that even meant. And then I remember with the Lisbon Treaty, that was all over the news was like, we can't allow this to happen because it'll allow abortions into the country. And the thing is, like, I had always been pro-choice because it wasn't even an, an option not to be. It was just a normal thing. It hadn't even been had to be a conversation. It was just normal. You know, um, it was just a normal thing to me. So, uh, you know, I obviously didn't understand the Eighth Amendment. Um, I didn't understand what the Eighth Amendment was or how it impacted anybody until um, Savita's um, really tragic death. Um, and I think a lot of, none of us, I don't, I, not none of us, but so many of us didn't know what the Eighth Amendment was or its real impacts on on our pregnancies. Um, so yeah, like it's such a, it's such a wild experience to be in Ireland. I, I feel like Ireland has changes so quickly. It really, really moves so, like the prog- progression is so fast. Um, and it's really cool to watch Irish people just go like, like Irish people are really, really, really cool, you know? Um, and are really, I think that's one of the things is that the communities and being there for each other and really caring about each other is what I saw when I felt like if they heard what was happening around them, they would vote differently. You know, if they if they knew this was happening, this they would change because... Irish people are like that. I feel like they wouldn't let somebody suffer that's around them ever. Um, it's the soundness. Irish people yeah. are sound. Um, after the result of the referendum, the yes vote, the home to vote crowd asked if they could pay for your citizenship. That must yeah. have been a nice moment. That was really overwhelming. A really, really overwhelming. It's so, so sweet. Um, it felt like being asked to be a sister and asked to be here and and to get to be just that, that I get to be wanted. You know, not that I just get to stay here because I'm married, but because people want me here and they feel like I belong here. And um, yeah, I feel I still kind of feel like I'm having like an out of body experience and I I won't understand the full scope and impact of all of this work and all of these experiences until I'm you know, 40 years older than than, you know, from here. So I have some distance Um, because it's been such a massive massive few years of 
yeah, just the people I've met, the experiences I've had, um, and and then to be asked to to be part of the country in that way is so, so lovely. Um, you've set up another Facebook page called In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancies to raise awareness in regard to the regulations that um, are in place since March 2020, which puts a lot of women in very, you know, difficult and challenging situations who are using the Irish maternity services. What have you found from that? What kind of stories are coming through? Well, I didn't set that page up. Um, that was set up by two other women, two other mothers who contacted me to ask me to set up a page like that. And when they asked uh, what I set up, uh, one one woman had contacted me and asked, would I do a page like that? Um, I I said I couldn't, that I was overwhelmed and um, and that she sounded like she'd be a good person to do that work. Um, so herself and another woman ha- had started doing that. Um and I'm just sharing on their, their, I'm supporting their page and sharing it on, on In Her Shoes. Um, it's really, really shocking and eye-opening and, and horrifying to see what's happening right now for, for pregnant people and for their, their whole families and the repercussions that will come with that, you know, of, of becoming mothers and raising these children and, and the impacts that it'll have on their mental health. Um, of traumatic births and not ha- not being supported. Um, it's like everything that we're trying to fight for, everything that I've been really passionate about is improving maternity services. And, um, and it's just really, really heartbreaking to see what's happening right now with COVID. Erin, what do you wish would happen? What would you like to say to sort of the people in charge that, that they should change and, and that would make lives better for women and pregnant people going into hospital now? Well, I mean, there has to be such a massive overhaul to begin with in our maternity system. But um, I feel like the, the one of the main things that we could do is focus on supporting our midwives, making sure that, they, that we have more midwives, that they're not over overworked, that they are paid appropriately, that women are getting one-on-one continuous care with, uh, with one of their midwives or whoever their provider is. Um, we don't have options for home birth. Um, or we have very, very limited options for home birth. And for somebody living rurally or um, like it's it's just for us to have options. You know, we want options. We want safe options. We want options outside of the hospital. We want birthing centers. You know, birth is birth can be uh, it is such a lovely experience for most people or it can be. And then hospitals are a great place for somebody who who needs different type, different type of care. So, um, I feel like, you know, if our, if our leaders were actually to be properly involved with Ames Ireland and really listen to midwives who are wanting to provide that woman to woman care, um, then we can make some, some proper differences. You were mentioning being overwhelmed there and that you couldn't do the COVID pregnancies Facebook page, but you're supporting the other people. So what are you doing? What's going on in your life at the moment? You've got three kids now. What ages are they? I have a 10-year-old, 7-year-old and a 4-year-old. Okay, that's busy enough. Yeah. That's busy enough. Um, writing the book uh, was a lot. Um, as a, like, trying to be an artist, trying to, um, trying to take a second, trying not to take on all the work. Um, yeah, I, I, the overwhelmingness of, of all of that, of knowing how hard it was to take in all the the stories from, um, in her shoes, um, 
knowing I can't necessarily, I don't really have the full scope to be able to do that right now because I won't be able to stop myself. I won't, I won't know how to care for myself in that way. And so trying to let these women know who are doing this, like, okay, be really, really careful and be really mindful and really, really please look after yourself. And, and then of course I still just desperately want to jump in and help them too, because it's really, really, really hard not to. So I think right now I'm just trying to, to take a break, not take a break, but just trying to find a moment to stop. And it's really, really hard for me to do, you know? I have to say again how beautifully written it is. I just want to read this blurb on the back of the book because this this piece jumped out at me as well uh, that's written. I'm just going to read this, Erin. Uh, Women gather naturally. When our history isn't important enough for men to write it down in ink, we take to needle and thread, sewing ourselves into the quilts for our daughters and sons, telling stories and embroidery. When our histories are not safe to voice aloud, we ensure they are folded in the hems of skirts, sharp daggers tucked in hats. We will not go silently. We write our own history into legislation, into the doll, in poems and books, in music and art. Our stories keep us alive. We wait. For centuries, we wait. It's really poetic and lovely, your writing. And um, like I said... It is obviously the stories of these 32 women, which represent so many more women. But it's also your story uh, of somebody, I suppose, an outsider in a way, coming in and really embedding in a different country and becoming part of an incredible movement that changed this country. So um, I'm just really grateful to you for Inner Shoes and for all the women that, that helped you too. But also to say that the book is full of your beautiful artwork as well, which is gorgeous. So I'm just telling everyone to go and buy it because it's it's really, really great. It is really beautiful. I, I like I'm biased, but I, it is a really, really beautiful <laughs> book because it is. I think that it's such an incredible book about um, of why women's stories are so important. And uh, it's not just a historical and it's not just about abortion. It's about it's about writing ourselves into history and so that we're not forgotten. Uh, it's about sisterhood and about these circles of women and how we can be together and how we can support each other. Um, I'm so grateful to be part of it and that I've had the opportunity, um, not only from these women telling me their stories, but allowing me to bring it further into the world. And, um, and I hope that I've done them justice. Um, it's been really, really beautiful to work on and, and I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud that it's not just out in the world here, but it's it's going abroad. It's in other countries. Um, and I'm hoping that it can make a difference in other places. That's brilliant. I absolutely think it will, Erin, and you should be proud. Um, it's it's fantastic. I want to wish you the best of luck with everything else you do because you're such a talented person. I mean, the writing and the art and the activism, you've got so many things going on there, as well as being uh, a mother and a partner in that incredible movie-like story. So maybe the movie will be made. I don't know who will play you. Anybody could. Oh, I don't you, know. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about it. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you and so much. That was Erin Darcy there. And the book is called In Her Shoes. And I can't recommend it more highly. I think it would make a really lovely present for anyone you know who was uh, involved in repeal. Um, so yeah, a nice Christmas present if you're thinking that way already, which I know a lot of us are. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves, take care. We will get through this and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 